The talk tonight is about understanding equanimity. Some years ago, I came across a writing by the Reverend Howard Thurman. He's a co-founder of the Church of the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco. And these words continue to inspire how my heart can incline towards equanimity. So this is from a collection of his meditations entitled Deep is the Hunger. So you can find that online yourself. Deep is the Hunger. He says, How may we work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world without despair and complete fatigue? What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with its vicissitudes of cruelty and transient joys with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit. Seeing the world with quiet eyes, that's the name of the talk really, seeing the world with quiet eyes. It's one of the subjective experiences of this equanimity, of this state of equanimity that we can actually have in our hearts and use in our lives. It's a calm inner quiet, along with having a balance, a spacious balance, not like a balance on a razor's edge, but a spacious balance in the world. And at the same time, we're staying connected with it all. It's not like, you know, we're pushing it away. It's like we can be really close to what's happening. Stay connected, balanced, spacious, fairly calm, calm enough to see clearly. Equanimity is one of those divine emotions called the Brahma-viharas. Brahma means high, vihara means space or place, abiding place. As I I mentioned before, it's someplace in within us, someplace in our hearts, not someplace outside of us. It's a heartfelt connection. It's not like we're separating ourselves. So I'll talk about those ways that we do that later on. It's important to understand about equanimity because we live in a culture that has a lot of information and a lot of speed to it. And we're frequently, as we talked about in some of our Uh, groups were frequently just kind of led around by that speed, like we have to keep up with it or we're caught in it. And all the information that comes kind of pounding down onto us, where do we, how do we handle it all? Where do we parse it and suss out what's really important? So we're constantly bombarded with all of this information, all of the ways the world is happening, and it happens with such speed. So it triggers reactions in us of judgment and fear and blame and self-righteousness and anger. Of course it does. We're human, so it does. All these reactive states of mind that prevent us from seeing clearly 
So equanimity is the complete opposite of reactivity. When we're reacting in the world, we're really not connecting, we're really not seeing clearly, we're blinded or we're veiled with some kind of aversion or attachment to how we think it should be. So there's such an intensity to what's going on and complexity and this makes the suffering sort of multi-layered when it's like that. So to distance ourselves from that, as I talked about last night, our consumer society lures us with opportunities to encourage the obsession of wanting and accumulating, more layering to kind of put a, a fence between us and what's going on kind of like a wall, so we don't have to feel it. There are, recently there was an ad, increase your desire, you know. (laughs) I came up on my computer. Increase your desire. (laughs) So this addiction, normalizing it, normalizing addiction and craving, it's all around us. So how do we, how can we live in a world like this? It's just getting more and more so that anything that I open to on Google or, um, you know, on my computer, it it knows exactly what I ordered on Travelsmith and everything. And it presents all the other opportunities for me to... uh, Recently you purchased this, you might like this. And then it's just so much, that reactivity of seeing something that's pleasant and then you know, okay, I'm going to press the button and see what other kind of dresses are just like this one that I bought for traveling. It becomes so easy to react that way in this world we live in. So entertainment also of all kinds to escape and avoid unpleasant feelings on the inside. This is the culture we live in. It's just how it is, and I'm not blaming anything. It's just how it is, and the next koan is, how can we live with that? How can we navigate that? So somewhere in the news, there was a headline, we live in a culture of escapism. So I read it and said all these things that I'm just imparting to you now. So it's understandable that we feel vulnerable as I spoke about last night, this vulnerability in the form of anxiety or depression, it's understandable that we feel those. We, experience, we have a lot of that in, around us, children even. We're anxious in our lives. The Buddha talked about the eight worldly conditions in relationship to equanimity that we're constantly feeling the flux of. They're known as the four pairs of the vicissitudes of life. And these are praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. So when any of these happen to us, we're constantly reacting to them. We like to be praised, we don't like to be criticized. Of course. And sometimes it's very intense. You know, we, we really want the praise. And we really 
don't like that criticism. We like to experience gain and more and more of it, and we don't like to feel loss. We like approval. We don't like disapproval or rejection. We like pleasure. We don't like pain. This is the human condition. It's so true. It creates a bigger problem because we're constantly reacting to these things that come at us in life. External conditions are constantly affecting our thoughts, our emotions, our mental states, our attitudes. And so more and more, I think it's one of the reasons why mindfulness is getting so popular. It's kind of a buzzword now. It's not just in meditative fields. It's in education. It's in the medical field. It's uh, in corporations. I'd like to read you something from that His Holiness the Dalai Lama wrote in connection with this. With regard to um, wanting pleasure and not wanting uh, displeasure, wanting approval and not wanting rejection. We all experience these. Even animals probably have some of them to, in some slight measure. I think all of us are concerned in particular about maintaining a good reputation. This is uh, about this, uh, you know, wanting a good reputation and not have this ill repute going around about you. He said, for example, when I'm here teaching from time to time, somewhere in the back of my mind, there appears the thought, how am I doing? How are people going to react to this? Are they going to praise me? Maybe not. Oh! (laughs) It's right there. That, oh! That did not go well. Will people criticize me? Whenever this happens, I need to catch myself and say, look, now that I am here transmitting the Dharma, I should not allow myself to be affected like this by the eight worldly concerns. However, we will find that hopes, fears, and discursive thoughts of every description will come into our minds. The eight worldly concerns can creep up on us quite stealthily and sneakily, and even when we do something virtuous, they will try to find a way to slip in. So here, in that story of the Dalai Lama, we see an example of how we're not only affected by our outer conditions, but actually it was kind of reassuring for me to read that he finds that same thing happening in his mind that I do in mind, you know. Like sometimes I'll say something, and I'll keep going in my Dharma talk, but inside I'm going, ooh, why did I say that, you know? <laughs> so those kind of cringing moments happen. There's praise and blame all the time, you know, coming from our own minds about what we do and what we say in our own lives. And, of course, from the outside, too. There used to be, at IMS, where I do um, offer a lot of Dharma, that's kind of like the mother meditation center of Vipassana on the East Coast. There used to be a board where, after a Dharma talk, you know, there'd be all these notes and the teachers' names and there'd be a clip for all the responses. And it took us probably 20 years (laughs) to remove the clip (laughs) because 
all after a Dharma talk, it was all either praise or blame on the, you know, <laughs> what you said wrong or what you said right on the, <laughs> in your Dharma talk. So we would go back in the back room and we'd have a can for praise and a can for blame, you know. And just not let it get to us. Because both ways, you know, we like the praise, oh, are we going to get more? And we don't like the blame. Not so much big blame, but like, mm, just ways of maybe you could improve your Dharma talk. very politely said, usually. (laughs) So a friend and yogi of mine said, what she felt more than anything was not outside, but she felt assaulted by her own thinking. And I mean, it's true. We sit here and we we feel like we're just being bombarded by the habit patterns of our minds. That's why we really need to learn how to incline the mind towards metta and compassion, equanimity. So with the outer conditions and the inner, unseen, unconscious habit patterns sometimes that are constantly working, it's no wonder that we can feel closed down and disconnected from ourselves. Because it's hard to go there. It's really hard to go there. So the important question for us is this. How can we stay open and connected yet have an abiding sense of balance? We really need that more than anything in this world. That's why equanimity is called the queen or king of the Brahma Viharas, of these divine emotions. This inner balance toward the outer worldly conditions and the inner conditions that come about in response or reactivity to the outer world because we're paralyzed by them a lot. We react in ways that add more suffering to the world and to ourselves. So um, sometimes, you know, I get this response from yogis is, I'm more afraid of what my karma's doing with all of this than what people are saying about this action. I'm more afraid of how it's going into my karmic stream and affecting the future of my life by the habit pattern that's karma by feeding it over and over again and not doing anything about a way to incline the mind someplace else by just letting it happen reacting to it in the same old ways and sometimes by feeding it by you know we have a reaction of anger or and then we say something angry or we do something angry so this it actually um, it increases the, the intensity of the karma in our karmic field. So how can we stay aware and attentive yet compassionate towards ourselves when we see that when we're reacting to the outer inner landscape, we're only hurting ourselves, really. Not just hurting out there, but we're hurting our own karmic field. So what we're doing here is we're learning the skills to really be honest about our inner terrain, to really see what's behind the activity, why we say, why we do things in the way that we do, how we are in the world, what's underneath it all. And 
how to be with all of that, not just the outer, but also the inner. We're getting to really know ourselves so well. So we need this quality to navigate both the outer and the inner terrain. Equanimity implies balance when we just hear that word, but the subjective experience is not like being on a razor's edge. And if we do something a little bit, you know, not so good in one way, we fall this way. Or if we do, we want something so much another way, we fall that way. It's not a razor's edge. It's more like a a very broad stance. Sometimes it's described as a mountain. You know how it can really just have a very wide base. And whatever comes to the mountain, the mountain can handle it can hold that. It can hold lightning and rain and thunder and all of that. Earthquakes, harsh sunshine. It, contain all, it can contain all of life and that's the way it can be with our minds and our hearts. It can have a very sturdy base and a very wide base. It can also be like space that can hold everything one of the um, examples that the Tibetans give is that it can be, equanimity can be like space, and you can throw paint into space, and it just doesn't stick. You know, it, there's no place for it to land. That's one way that space is used as one of the uh, examples of equanimity. To really survive and thrive as a human being, we need a big enough space to be able to hold all that we experience in the world. Loss and gain of resources and and people through death or through separating from those we love in different ways. Um, Praise and blame and all the ups and downs of life. You, you know them as well as I do. There's many more than these eight that I mentioned. Don Juan said to Carlos Castaneda, the art of being a spiritual warrior is to balance the terror of being human with the wonder of being human. So all of that, you know, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the gain and the loss. When we can um, actually inhabit the spaciousness, our heart can be that big, there can be a lot of clarity there because we're really seeing everything. We're not like pushing away what we don't like and just holding on to what we like. We're, We're really able to see the whole shebang and to really assess the situation because we can see it all. And because there's hopefully lessened, a lessened amount or none at all of the veils of wanting it to be a certain way, not wanting it to be the way it is. So there's um, a lessening of greed and hatred and there's more clarity. And so, of course, there's less delusion there. So we can see things as they are in this kind of balance and this kind of bigness and this clarity and we can take the most skillful action if that's called for because we can see things as they are 
So a lot of people hear the word equanimity and think, oh, it just means that you're, you just stand there and say, oh, this is how it is. And then you let the truck run over you because you're not in the right place. But that isn't true at all. It's, it's the ability to have the appropriate response to life, a response that's skillful. So it's not only that we, we take it in and assess it clearly, but also includes the appropriate, skillful response. And one of the responses may be, maybe it's better not to take action at that moment. Maybe it's better to just be quiet. I mean, that takes a lot of skill to know when to do that. To know when, I I call it the Dharma duct tape, to put the Dharma duct tape on the mouth and say, and just know. It's better not to say anything right now, maybe because of the state that we know our minds are in. That would be a good idea. So this is how it is right now, is one phrase that we often use about the outer conditions, the inner conditions. And when we see that it is the way it is, we may be able to respond with in ourselves, well, okay, this is the way it is right now. Either that's going on outwardly or we see it inwardly. This is the way it is right now. And then right after that we ask the question, and what's the proper response to this? What response to this would lead to the most beneficial place for all beings, everyone considered? Sometimes it helps to be more precise with our uh, phraseology to say something like, if there's praise or blame, there's a phrase that goes, praise and blame arise and pass away. It's part of life. Gain and loss arise and pass away. Pleasure and pain arise and pass away. So sometimes just to use one of those phrases really helps to pinpoint what's happening and to be able to, yeah, say that's true. You know, this this moment of hearing this praise, though I like it, it's going to disappear. So it's okay. And I don't need to chase after it. So equanimity is said to make loving kindness powerful because actually when we see that as I said this afternoon, the near enemy of loving-kindness is attachment and the far enemy is hatred. So it makes loving-kindness powerful because there is no reactivity of hatred or attachment in equanimity. So it's equanimity is, uh, there's an absence of those far and near enemies, hatred, attachment. So it makes loving-kindness very, very profoundly powerful. We're actually accepting the everythingness of life, not holding on to anything. It takes a, a very clear mind, a courageous mind to do that. And we can feel it sometimes. I mean, Sometimes it it takes us going through something and really accepting, getting familiar with that dukkha, with that pain, 
and really touching it over and over again to be able to get to the point where it comes again in the same intensity, but the response to it is, all right, this is how it is right now. And the mind can be big enough and spacious enough to hold it. It doesn't have to, like, react to it. It's said that equanimity is love that can encompass everything, yet possess nothing. It doesn't have to hold on or push away. So I witnessed this strong and deep unconditional love and steady balance from a friend of mine uh, living on Maui, she's moved now, who said that the Dharma teaching of equanimity really helped her through really very, very trying times. And she gave me permission to tell this story in a Dharma talk. So quite some years ago, one of her grown-up friends, uh, sons in, er, in her, his early 20s disappeared. Um, I mean, she's, she has, other, has had other children, so she knows, okay, it happens sometimes, you know, that this is what happens to the youth. They go off and they do their thing and they don't want to contact the family, but nobody would tell her of his friends where he was and she was wondering whether, did he fall off a cliff? Did he drown? Did he die? Did he dry? You know, is he on drugs or what? So she kind of held a vigil for a long time. The family did their best to find out what happened, and they didn't come up with anything at all. It was very difficult for them. As you can imagine, whether you have children or not, very, very difficult. So... Um, not knowing what or where was happening, she held that very strong inner vigil of patience and steadiness. And it was maybe one or two years that that was going on with her. It was a great loss and a mystery, very uh, painful, a lot of sorrow going on. So I was her teacher, so she would come to me with all of this, what she was feeling. There's a, one of the phrases that I uh, put together because of my, having my own children. All beings have their own journey, though we may not know what it is or understand it. I, but I use that first phrase, all beings have their own journey. And the second part is part of it anyway, even though I don't say it. Though we may not know what it is or understand it. So I have grown children um, aging from mid-30s to late-40s now. And in my life with them, there's a lot that I didn't understand. There was a lot that they went through that is like, wow, this is so beyond me. All I can do is keep my mind open and stand by them, whether they were push- pushing me away or not. And um, it was a lot of it was a mystery And all beings have their own journey. It didn't mean that I didn't do anything about it. I would see them going down, you know, like going down a river. And I knew from experience that you're going to hit a waterfall over there or some rapids. And I would say, you really better watch out. Or can you please get your boat to shore? Or And sometimes it wasn't even nice the way I said it, you know. I'd say it loudly and with a lot of vigor. 
and sometimes with anger. That was my own reactivity out of fear behind that. But they went anyway. They, they, I learned later on when they would tell stories, even just recently, about what they went through, like, oh my God, my son almost died, and they never even told me that, <laughs> that his older sister pushed her off of Black Rock on Maui, pushed him off of that, and he hardly got out of it alive. You know, he went into the ocean. So, okay, they kept that from me because I I would have really gotten on my daughter's case for that. (laughs) Anyway, all beings have their own journey, right? So I said that a lot in my equanimity for them. So back to my friend, Karen. Eventually, she and her husband sold their beautiful home and property on Maui, and they traveled through Asia on their way to see their daughter living in Europe, who was going to give birth to a child. So that kind of helped them through their sorrow. Just before they left, her son, who had disappeared, appeared. So he was all right. You know, I didn't know the details, but basically... He was fine when he got back. I don't know what happened in the interim. So after an experience of a lot of loss and sorrow, there was great joy and gain to to have him appear again. They found him, or he found himself and he came back. So gain and loss, joy and sorrow, arise and pass away. She did not hide her sorrow or her pain. She said it like it was. She didn't want to kind of layer a veneer over it that, oh, I'm a courageous mother or I'm so equanimous about it. She really said it like it was and and worked with being equanimous with her own reactions to it. So they had a good, um, you know, coming together and then they continued on their journey. They went on their journey, arrived at their daughter's place in Europe. The daughter gave birth to a beautiful child. And while there, not long after that, they got the news that her other son, the one who did not disappear, he tragically died. He was 21 years old. This was all in a very short period of time. So there was birth of the grandchild, death of the child, a kind of ultimate sorrow for a parent, grandparents, family. And it was indescribably painful for her, that birth and death, you know, that gain and loss, that pleasure and that pain. So not long after that, actually I was teaching here and then met her in, in Portland after that where they had just had a, um, something for him, a memorial service for him. And she talked to me about it then over dinner, and she said that she owed her steadiness and her balance to the Dharma. It really saved her life. And this is what she wrote to me in an email later. I feel most genuine when I can hold in my heart the sorrow of losing Alex alongside with the love and joy of who he was. So that you kind of get that sense of that bigness of her heart, you know, that spaciousness to be able to hold both. 
I'm staying connected. A key phrase. I'm staying connected. It seems to me this kind of loss can either destroy us or make us stronger, and I'm determined to learn to grow from it. The Dharma has been very helpful. Of course, like all mothers, she still has her challenges, as I hear from her now and then. But all through this time, she stayed connected with the ups and downs of her life, and she stayed connected and truthful with the ups and downs of her, of her responses to it. She was not trying to overlay it with some other, like, uh, maybe I should be another way, or um, just be grateful for what I have. Yes, that's true too. But sometimes we can do it to avoid feeling discomfort in our own minds. We do a lot of things to avoid avoid discomfort in, in our own minds. So one of my phrases um, that I like to use also, and not just everyone has their own journey, my own children have their own journey, is the unfolding of person's life is a result of countless, unknowable, untraceable causes and conditions. This has helped me, you know, in my recent life. The unfolding of a person's life is a result of countless, unknowable, untraceable conditions and causes. Can we remember this every day? You know, when something tragic happens to us or something that's really painful happens. I know I can't remember it all the time, but I incline the mind and heart there. So sometimes the metaphor of the sky is used to describe what it feels like, that infinitely spacious sky, that it can contain all the dualities of this world. And this is, um, I said something about it a while ago, but I want to also quote Achan Sumedho, who said this so beautifully. The mind is like space. There is room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we know the space of the mind, its emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave. Butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through without us being caught in reaction or resistance. So he's talking there about having equanimity in our lives. One way it can be described or defined is not being thrown off balance by events beyond our control. Not being thrown off balance. So one way we can look at that is that we do have influence over the events of our life, right? By our intentions, and we follow through with our speech and our actions. But a lot of our life, not in its entirety, but a lot of our lives, we don't have control of. For example, what has happened in the past, we don't have control of. Our response to what has happened, we have control over. But it's already said and done. It's already done. The past is said and done. The future is not yet here, but we worry about it. 
and the present that's already arising, we have the control over we have that is how we respond to the present moment's experience. The present moment, when it's realized, has already manifested itself as pleasant or unpleasant, um, as some kind of gain or loss in our perception, etc., etc. So it's already doing its thing because of its causes and conditions. No control over that. But how we respond to it, of course, we have some control over that. We can respond uh, with equanimity, with compassion, with loving kindness, with uh, sympathetic joy. Whatever is skillful. That's why those four are called the divine emotions because they are feelings that we have in our hearts. Someone once said to me, you can do something in an instant that will give you heartache for a whole life. (laughs) So, the example... I've given this example so many times. I've gotten a lot of mileage out of this story about Manindra. And it's, it's really about surrendering to how what's happening right now in this moment. He used to always use this phrase to, for myself and for others, surrender to how it is, surrender to the Dharma. And the way he would say it is surrender to the law. Just surrender to the law. The law means the way things are the Dharma. Being able to see what's happening without resistance or attachment. So one um, early evening there was a squabble between my youngest daughter then, who was in her early teens, and her father. And so there was a very strong shouting and reacting towards one another in the other room. So I was sitting at the dining room table here, and Manindra was sitting on this side of me, and the fight was going on over there in in the den in the other room. And so I heard them saying, Therese, blah, blah, blah. And my daughter said, no, I don't want to. And then the father said, Therese, I told you, I don't want to something like that. And so she walked off around me and down the hall. She went in her room and she slammed the door with all her might. And so here I was sitting there, like I was, during that time period, Manindra was recuperating from some surgery that he had in Maui, and I was taking care of him. And I thought, I just wanted this to be a perfect time for him. You know, and besides, I was so embarrassed about, you know, family fight, fighting. So I was just like going lower and lower in my seat and also wanting to say something to them. Like, you know, shout, stop, or something. But no, I didn't do that. And so um, her father went around and knocked on the door and said, open this door. And on the other side, no, open this door, or else I'll kick the door in. Go ahead. Boom, that door went down, you know. 
And so I was, I'm just like, oh my God. You know, I wanted to just die or run away or not face it or something. Manindra, very calmly, sitting on that side, we were having something to eat. He took his right hand and he put it on my left forearm. And he looked at me straight in the eye, just kind of steadfastly. And he said, surrender to the law. (laughs) It's like, Kamala, this is what's going on now. This is what's happening. And I was just squirming in my seat and everything. And what he was trying to tell me was, can you just take this in as a clear, with clarity, instead of fighting it? Can you just be able to see what's going on and not go through all the contortions you're going through? The wisdom of seeing how it is instead of the denial about it. I didn't want that to happen. You know, I, I wanted something else. I wanted it to be calm, but it wasn't calm. I wanted Manindra to see that we had a you know, a family life that was nice, but it wasn't, you know. (laughs) People aren't nice to each other in our family sometimes. But you know what? Menindra did not make any comment after that. It was like, in India, I'm not sure how it is in India, but in his family, I visited his family a few times, but... um, You know, they meditate every morning at 5 o'clock and chant... Buddham Sarananga Chami together, you know, and uh, so I thought, oh my God. But here's people shouting at each other. But you know, he just accepted it. He just accepted how it was. He never made any judgmental comment about it or anything. He was very, very compassionate. His behavior showed me that he had a big mind about it. Our background and circumstances may have influenced who we are, but we are responsible for who we become. That's a quote from James Reinhardt. We are responsible for who we become. So it's really taking responsibility for how we react in our lives, how we respond to life in our lives. So this is the actual... um, quote, traditional quote, that's very much parallel to what I just said, that quote by James Reinhardt. All beings are owners of their actions. Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their intentions and actions and not upon my wishes. This is really taking responsibility for what we do and letting people take the responsibility themselves for what they do. So as I engage in the various facets of my life, I ask myself, am I seeing the world with quiet eyes? And, you know, I don't always, of course. But help, thankfully, for the, with the help of the Dharma, I'm, I'm able to see more of what goes on inside me and discern whether... I'm really drawing from that inner quietude when I respond, or am I not quiet? Am I really just reactive and don't know it? Do I say things because I want to be right, or I want to say the best thing and and be better than everybody else? 
or do I, you know, do I want to be argumentative or not even that I want to, but because it's a habit pattern of the mind. So am I being truly honest? That's what we learn here. Are we really being honest with ourselves, with what comes out of our actions, out of our mouths? So it's said that there is this direct, these are, there are these opposites of equanimity. There's a direct opposite, which is called the far enemy, which is what I've been talking about for a while. That's reactivity. So that far enemy is two-pronged. It's reactivity by way of aversion or by way of attachment. So if there's something unpleasant that strikes us, the reactivity to that is aversion. If there is something pleasant that strikes us, the reactivity to that is attachment. So in our training here, we're really recognizing how to open to all of that on our inner terrain. And um, when we're, we have this truthful connection with ourselves, we're more able to have that truthful connection to those outside of ourselves, to those in our family. We can see how it is with them, and we know how it is because we see ourselves in that same kind of wave that comes over us that we can't stop, you know, and we just kind of go at it with some kind of reactivity. Resting the mind before, before it falls into that extreme of attachment or aversion. Resting the mind. When we, when we feel equanimity, we do feel at rest. We do feel like there's not something urging us. As somebody said in a, in a group today or yesterday, there's this kind of urge to do something. But there's also this um, kind of be careful, be careful, because what you do might be harmful, not just to somebody out there, but to yourself. So there's this kind of warning signal. One time, um, when Manindra was with me during this time, I was trying to cook for him and trying to use some spices. And he, he loves the Indian spices, of course, he used to look for the hottest chilies there could be in, in, on Maui. Um, taste all the chilies there were in the stores, you know, buy them and taste them and then get the hottest ones for his food. So one time I was cooking and it wasn't turning out very well. And uh, I could see on his face, you know, he, he does have this look <laughs> where his, his lips go down. And um, his eyes go a certain way, and I can tell there's something going on in his mind. And so one time when I was cooking, I said, Manindraji, is there aversion or annoyance in your mind right now? Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> just also the way he was talking about how I should do this or that. And he's, you know, Manindra's a partially enlightened being, not a fully enlightened being as far as what I know about him. And so, of course, there's still aversion in the mind. And so he said, yes, 
there he is. He was truthful. He wasn't trying to hide it. He said, yes, there is a version in the mind. And I, I said, how do you know that? And he said, there is a sign. There is a sign inside that kind of warns me. There's a version there. There's a feeling there. And he was describing the kind of shakiness and the kind of trembliness that he feels and the urge, you know, to say something and maybe in a certain way. He was kind of describing it all. But he says, but I don't have to act on it. But he he was truthful that it was there. But he didn't have to act on it, he said. So this is the way it can be for us, too, when we really see where we're really coming from. And if it's not a good time to say anything, then don't say anything if we see what's going on in our minds. As uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, in that state of mind, you can deal with the situation with calmness and reason. And then our words have a powerful healing effect on those around us. So, I remember one time in an interview, I heard um, there was a, he was talking about what was happening in Tibet, and this was maybe 25 years ago, and I was present at this time, at this interview, somebody was asking him, um, saying, I want to go and help you and do what I can in Tibet for what's going on there. So many people were getting killed and, um, you know, the monasteries were being ravaged. And so he really sensed that person's attitude about it was so on fire and there was anger in his heart and in his words and in his actions. And so he said, uh, His Holiness said, Oh no, wait till you calm down. Wait till you calm down and then you can help. When there's more equanimity, then you can help. So I had this experience with a a friend or a neighbor really. And um, she came to the house because there was something happening that she didn't like our our boundary lines butted up against each other and she didn't like what we were doing on our boundary line. So she came over and she was quite temperamental and emotional and she was trying to make her case. And so I noticed how strongly this person felt about, you know, having it the way she wanted to have it on her lot. And... um, and we, we did have every right to do what we wanted to do on our lot, but she was very strong about it. And I knew this was no time to talk to her about that. And her husband was going through some, diff- some health problems, and so I thought, it's very hard for her right now, and it's very difficult for her to see the point of view that I have about this. So I realized that it was not a good time for her to talk about it. And I could make room for that. I could understand that in my mind, that she was highly emotional. So I had the response to her inside. I thought, this is the way it is for her right now. Okay, 
It's the way it is for her right now. So I have to temper what I'm saying because she's not in a place where she's going to really receive what I'm saying. And because I already tried and it wasn't received. So when she react, she continued to react and I thought, all right, what am I, what's going on for me? And I, I felt reactive myself. I, I wanted to say something to her in a harsh voice and I think, you know, I was pretty loud sometimes or louder than I usually am and so I saw this is the way it is in my heart right now. So I assessed the outer and I assessed the inner and I thought, I better not continue this conversation. So I said to her, I think I'll stop now because I'm not coming from the clearest space in my heart. I better stop, and maybe let's talk another time. And she said, you're right. You're not coming from the clearest space in my heart. <laughs> uh, you can imagine how I felt. You know, It was like, boy, I had to do double duty on the Dharma duck table. <laughs> so... <laughs> Again, it was another opportunity for me to say, okay, this is the way it is for me right now. And we finally got things straightened out, but it wasn't easy. So that's reactivity, you know, the far enemy, the two-part far enemy aversion to how it is, attachment to how you think it should be. So another opposite, it's called the near enemy because sometimes we don't realize that it's not equanimity. It's called uh, apathy or indifference. It feels like equanimity because we're pretty chilled out. We're not, you know, we're just, but we're not connected. We're just chilled out. It's like sometimes people express that, at least in Hawaii, it's... Mm -hmm. I don't care, you know. We we have this saying, I no care. Whatever's, you know, mm-hmm. I no care. So that's the apathy. I just don't care. It's like an emotional emptiness. And really it's it's like we're distancing ourselves from our true emotions and from the emotions, whatever's happening with the other person or other situation. It's a distancing it's avoidance. And we all have them, and sometimes we have them for good reason, for our own good survival. But um, sometimes it goes too far, it's too deeply ingrained, and we have a ha- that habit pattern happening when really what we need in the situation is connection with ourselves, connection with the other person. But we don't do that. We just distance and stay disconnected and avoid and there's a kind of coldness to it there's a kind of aloofness to it and um, sometimes a, a righteousness to it that you know I have the right to feel this way yep all beings are owners of their actions you know sometimes we can say that and say, you know, the karma police is going to get you sometime. (laughs) And so we have to be careful about how we say that. All beings are owners of their actions. 
So the practice is to stay connected and to be clear with that, whatever feeling we're having. If we feel that emotional emptiness or apathy, to connect to that place. That's what we need to do right there. This is how it is in my heart right now, not feeling so connected. And it's really wonderful when we hear that from somebody and they say, you know, I don't feel connected to my own heart right now, so it's hard to talk to you about this. So at least you know they're telling the truth. They're not just acting it out. So far enemy is that uh, reactivity, and near enemy is apathy, indifference, distancing, coldness. These are all ways people feel it. Um, resignation, things, uh, descriptions that come from other people. Um, sometimes just giving up or giving in because there's nothing else you can do right now. And you you don't have the energy to stand up for yourself sometimes. So apathy and difference is the way they have it in the traditional um, descriptions of it. That's the near enemy. So I want to make the point now about um, that we do take action. It, It doesn't mean that we're a doormat to life. It does not signify a sense of uh, resignation when we're equanimous. It means that we just see clearly how we think this should be handled right now in ourselves and in the situation. And that's what we're going to do. And so we do the best we can. We make our boundaries sometimes. We say, no, I'm not going to take this kind of treatment or, you know don't do anything that's going to harm me. We distance ourselves. One of my friends, she's actually a a great translator for the Tibetans. She says, Kamala, remember, no is a complete sentence. (laughs) You know? (laughs) No is a complete sentence. So, I'm going to tell you a story about what actually happened. It was during a retreat on Maui. And I went to um, the shopping center to get some gifts for the people that worked, were working for us, helping us. And um, I, when I entered the shopping center, and I was with my friend, a nun, uh, over on, on the other side of uh, another building, I was on one side of the walkway, and on the other side of the walkway, a guy came along and started beating up on another guy. And the other guy was maybe on drugs, I don't know, but he was just kind of buckling under, or maybe he was alcohol or something, buckling under and he couldn't fight back. And the guy was just pounding on his head and on his body. And nobody was saying anything. It's like people were passing by, no, nobody was saying anything as, you know, two young guys, but one guy was totally helpless and the other guy was really strong. So I just started yelling at the top of my lungs. You know, I took time out from being a Dharma teacher <laughs> at this retreat and I started yelling at the top of my lungs, stop it, 
Stop it. Somebody get some help. You know, don't do that. Get out of there. But I didn't dare go close. I had that much wherewithal because somebody would beat on me, maybe. So I guess somebody did go and get the, uh, the security guard, and I could see that guard coming close, pulling them apart, and the guy who was beating up on the other guy just started running away, and he ran towards me. Well, I ran in another direction, you know, because he wasn't trying to get me. Just He was just running in my direction. But that's, that's equanimity. You, can't, you know what you need to do, and you do it. And you might have to shout at the top of your lungs, don't do that. It doesn't mean that you just stand by and say, things are just as they are. You know, you do something about it when you need to do so you have a really big mind. You can stand in the middle and see both sides. And you can be able to assess what's going on. So it's able to hold the everythingness of life and really experience it and be really connected with it. Not pushing it away if you don't like it. Not holding on if you want it to happen or keep happening. So on one of my uh, last trips to Manindra, uh, see Manindra in India, I went to visit him, getting older now. And um, what he wanted to do was go to some of the holy places, holy sites of the Buddha. So we went to Bodhgaya and to Sarnath and only those two of the four holy sites. Um, the other places are where he was born and where he died. So on this last day, he wanted me to go to Varanasi. It's where they have the burning ghats, you know, where they burn the bodies on the side of the river, on the Ganges River. So we went before dawn, and one of the things that only, you know, a Dharma teacher would want for you is, I said, well, why do you want me to go there? And he said, I want you to see the dead bodies floating on the river. You know, it's part of the practice uh, of seeing um, death and to seeing a, a body decaying, to actually experiencing that. So um, we took a boat out. It wasn't yet sunrise. It was a clear, warm morning before dawn. And so when we hired this boat, we all got in the boat. There was Manindra and myself and two friends that uh, were visiting him with me, going down the Ganges, and on one side was the burning ghats, and on the other side was the rising sun. And so here was the sun rising over the Ganges, and it's this beautiful, you know, orange ball coming up. And there was such awe at seeing this beautiful sight, very awe-inspiring. So I had a lot of appreciation for being able to be there, a lot of joy. On the other side, you know, just turning my head the other way, I could see close enough there were these bodies that were being laid on the pyres of wood, and the pyres of wood were being lit. So some of them were just being lit, some of them were burning already. Sometimes you saw a body that was just 
already, you know, black. And that was the state it was in. I never saw a body in the water, though. So here was appreciation and joy on one side, a new birth, you know, a new day. On the other side, death and sorrow and some compassion for the families who were going through their sorrow. And in me, in the boat, was a teacher. It's one of the greatest blessings you could have is to have a teacher in the Dharma to show you the way. So my first teacher here beside me, and he was like my grandfather, you know, so he's holding my hand as we're in the boat. And I felt so um, like here to have a teacher is a great joy, wonderful, appreciating that with him. It's such good fortune to have that. And then also seeing the people on dis- in despair on the banks of the river. You know, so un- I could hold that appreciation and that despair and just say, okay, this is part of life. All this one side here, one side there. And it was almost, you know, in the blink of an eye, I could- had to hold both sides. And also there's the, the beauty of India. You know, it's, it's so beautiful in its way, but the rawness of it, it's not unbeautiful, but it's just so raw. And, and to be able to hold that, you know, to see that, well, there are some people don't have water and they, they gather the running water on the side of the um, road and they, that's what they're using for their drinking water, you know. And yet, on the other side, there are these women riding on the backs of the motorcycles with the men driving, and their beautiful saris are flowing in the wind while the person is picking up water by the side of the road. So the beauty and the rawness of it all, it it just kind of opens your heart and breaks your heart at the same time. So just to be able to open to all of life, like what does it take? It takes equanimity. It's said that without equanimity, we wouldn't be able to reach that final liberation. It said that it's really the doorway to peace, that that's what one experiences just before liberation. So I'd like to end with this poem by William Stafford. And the name of the poem is The Way It Is from the book, The Way It Is. A lot of the book is about equanimity. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change. People wonder about what you're pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever lose the thread. So may that be so for all of us. So let's sit for just a moment and let the words dissolve.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.